Well, let's pray as we come to God's word that he would speak. Father, we thank you for the privilege of coming to you, uh, reading the scriptures, hearing this story, and we pray that the Lord Jesus would shine out for us this day. Reveal yourself to us, we pray in his name. Amen. Well, this morning we continue on in the next part of Matthew 26 in this lead up to Easter as we work our way toward the cross. In uh, this chapter that serves as a prelude, a calm before the storm, if you like, of all that happened to him. And you'll remember too that if you heard the message from last week that we've seen in the verses previous to these, that totally contrasting events took place. On the one hand, this amazing display of devotion and love and loyalty from Mary to Jesus. On the other hand, a sad display of a lack of devotion and loyalty and love from Judas to Jesus. And in the middle of those two extremes are the other 11 disciples. And it's these other 11 who feature prominently in the text before us today. They were probably oblivious to the plot the Jews had hatched to kill Jesus. They certainly didn't understand the actions of Mary in doing what she did for Jesus. And they were not party to the wheelings and dealings of Judas as his hand reached for 30 pieces of silver And so we can say for sure that it's no wonder Peter ended up promising all that he did at the end of these verses because they were in a terrible shock, a state of shock, when they listened to Jesus on that fateful night. Three things to note again for us today. First, in verses 17 to 25, note the astonishing news that Jesus broke to them. Now, most of you will be able to remember where you were September 11, 2001 and what you were doing when those terrible events happened. Shock has a way of etching itself into our memories. And all of the disciples would no doubt go to their final days with these events indelibly written upon their minds. This is one of those moments for the disciples when Jesus announced certain things to them and made it all the more memorable for them with the meal that he shared with them and the bold boasting of Peter that almost seems to finish off the event so perfectly. We probably in a month of Sundays could not understand the impact of the words that Jesus spoke to them as they gathered at the Passover meal when he said to them, one of you will betray me. Astonished unbelief, self-distrust given the setting, all reclining around the table at Passover. For us it would be like getting bad news at Christmas lunch. I mean, you just wouldn't want it, would you? But this is how it went. Of course, we readers of the Gospels know that this has been coming But these disciples had no inkling at all that this 
bombshell was about to be dropped and their response to the news was nothing like a, a how dare you say this about one of us? How dare you include me in that number? Although Peter's response was almost that. But there was a humble response full of self-doubt and self-distrust which was a healthy sign of the absence, not the presence, of selfish pride among them. But that's not all, is there? For to this response from them, we find in verses 23 to 25, in the midst of this astonishing news, we see that Jesus not only knew he was going to be betrayed by one of the disciples, but he confirmed the truths of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility coming together under God to bring about the plan for his death. And he does this, he says these things for a few reasons. One of them is to warn the betrayer. He says, he who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. Do you notice that by saying this, Jesus draws no attention to Judas? We know from John's account that none of the disciples caught on at the Lord's Supper. Jesus identified Judas in his own mind, but not to the other disciples. And he opened the gate of repentance for Judas. Notice also that Jesus said these words to underline the treacherous nature of his betrayal. He's not only about to be betrayed by a disciple, but by someone who has jointly dipped the bread with him in the Passover meal. It would be like sitting next to a professing believer at the Lord's Supper and you take the elements and then go and betray some confidence about them to someone else and bring them to ruin. Unthinkable act. It was worse than this for Jesus. And then Jesus spoke these words to show that he knew that God was in control of his betrayal. His death will not happen just because of the betrayer, but because of God's decree. The Son of Man goes as is written of him. It's not just these two truths are opposed to each other by being opposites. They join together. God decreed it. Judas does it. You may come back and you may say, well, how can that be? The first answer that I give you, it doesn't matter how it is, it is. That's the first truth. That's what the scripture says. We can't understand that. We just have to accept it. But there's also one more thing. After all of this, when all the other disciples respond, is it I, Lord? Judas responds, is it I, Rabbi? I don't know whether... It's significant in that. There's significance in that or not. But I do know that Judas betrayed Jesus' lordship over, over him. Judas, as we thought last week, has been with Jesus. Judas had heard the gospel from Jesus. Judas chose the path to betray Jesus. If that doesn't remind you, that God must do something in our hearts by the Holy Spirit before we can respond to the gospel, then nothing will ever convince you of that truth. 
Judas had seen the Christ. He'd heard the gospel. He'd seen the works of the person of our Lord. And he went out, says John, in his gospel, and it was night, indicating that darkness without was the darkness within. Secondly, in verses 26 to 29, we can note the memorable meal he shared with them. There are two things as we come to this part of the text. For a start, think of where they were. Yes, you will say they were in the upper room, true. But let's put it more broadly and say that like Keith was, uh, Jesus and his disciples were within the walls of Jerusalem. The city of David. They were not far from the temple upon which many years before Abraham took up the knife to slay his son Isaac. And then think of the night that it was. This was the night on which for 1400 and something years the people of God had gathered to celebrate their deliverance out of Egypt through the blood of the Passover lamb. And Jesus wanted the Lord's Supper to be understood in that context as the conclusion to the Passover, as the fulfilment of the Passover. Let me remind you about the truths of the Passover. It spoke as a meal and it said that God intervenes. The people had been in slavery and bondage to Egypt, but God, God saw, God heard, God raised up a redeemer. God intervened in their lives to bring them out of slavery and into freedom. Passover spoke about God being powerful. The might and the power of Egypt was one thing, but nothing compared with the might and power of the God of Israel who could take Pharaoh at his own game and defeat him. Passover spoke about God saving his people, for that is what he did. He delivered his people from Egypt and through the Red Sea, protecting them from the angel of death, rescuing them from bondage, bringing them release. And so it was on this night of all nights, with the taste of the unleavened bread and the bitter herbs and the roast lamb still fresh in their mouths and on their taste buds and the words about God's mighty acts of old still in their ears, that Jesus, when breaking the bread, didn't say, this is the bread of our affliction, which our ancestors ate after they let, when they left Egypt. But instead he said, this is my body. And the disciples, again, would have been astonished and startled by this dramatic change, this reinterpretation, this forcing them into the present, into looking at and hearing about him as the salvation bringer in a meal that would be symbolic of all that would happen on the next day. Not just reflecting upon something that happened way back in the past, but something that was in the very present for them. Now, it's figurative language here. I hope you understand that. Jesus is not claiming to be a piece of bread. 
any more than he claimed to be a bit of vine or an open door. So when we, we remember that when Jesus says, this is my body, he's standing right in front of them. He's not suggesting that he sort of magically morphs into bread. He's standing before them. That very fact emphasises this is representation. The same as when he says, this cup is my blood. Notice he doesn't say, this wine is my blood. So if you're going to take him literally, you can't say that the wine turns into his blood. You have to say that the cup turns into his blood, which is nonsense. The importance, though, of the sacrament is not found in focusing on the elements of the sacrament, but what the elements point to. The Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, is designed to get you to look away from itself to something else. See, when you're driving down the highway and you see a sign that says you're 50 kilometres from your destination, you don't stop and have a party around the sign. The function of the sign is not to draw attention to itself, but to point to something else. Same way the Lord's Supper functions for us. It's designed to point us to a greater reality, the reality of the finished work of Jesus on the cross. There was a soldier during the Second World War who married his fiancée a week before he went away to fight and naturally took with him a picture of his bride. No mobiles in those days, no texts, no emails, minimal correspondence by letter. So he had just that picture to remind himself of her. The picture, of course, was wonderful. It was the most tangible reminder of her that he had while he fought in the war. But when the war was over and they were reunited, do you think what he was most excited about was the picture? Or was it the reality of seeing her face to face? The Lord's Supper points us to the reality of our Saviour and his work on our behalf. It doesn't draw attention to itself. It's designed so that we might put our faith in him. It's not an end in itself but it points us in the right direction, upward to Christ, forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb when faith will no longer be required because sight will have taken over. Imagine sitting east at a window with a candle before you in the darkness. What use that candle when the sun rises? What light does a candle give compared to the light of the sun. So too, this meal that Jesus sat down and ate with his disciples was just to herald what would happen on the cross the next day, where Jesus gave himself for us and suffered for us, where Jesus did that to the point of death, where his body was broken, his blood was shed. Thirdly, note the bold pronouncement 
that was made to him. We follow the party as they leave the upper room to the Mount of Olives upon which Jesus would spend his last night. No doubt Jesus led them to a meeting place that he and they knew well, just a short distance from the city of Jerusalem and from the upper room where all this had unfolded. It was night and Judas had gone off into the darkness to do what he'd planned and we cannot surmise what would have been in the hearts and minds of the other 11 disciples. We know from the other gospel accounts that at one stage during the Passover meal they had argued over who of them was the greatest and this had earned them a stinging rebuke from their saviour. We know too that all Jesus had told them about the act of betrayal and all that he had shared with them in the meal had probably not yet sunk into their minds. So they were probably unprepared for the silence-breaking moment when Jesus said to them, you will all fall away from me this night for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Whatever his feelings were about what he said to them, I doubt that these words struck home with the eleven. Even if they'd realised that he was quoting to them from Zechariah chapter 13 and that his words, like everything else Jesus ever said, would no doubt be fulfilled Even then, the scope of what he was saying to them was way beyond them. This was the night when they would sleep while he prayed and the night they would run when he was arrested. This was the night that would be so etched into their memories in years to come. But at this moment, they were not prepared for what Jesus said to them, you will all fall away from me. While earlier Jesus had revealed, one of you will betray me, now all of them together, you will all fall. This was a big statement from Jesus. A true statement, but a very big one. All of them? All of them, says Peter? All of us? Peter, who is so often quick to speak... Peter, who was so often the unofficial spokesman of the Twelve, Peter, who was most certainly not prepared to say what he said in response, revealed in the fact that he spoke up when he should have kept his lips closed. The others might have been struck dumb, but Peter spoke up and he spoke too soon. He spoke up and promised the world without checking that he had the world to give. He spoke up without knowing his own heart. He heard something about what Jesus said about all of them scattering and he may well have thought, yep, maybe they will, maybe he will, maybe he will. I have my doubts about John. James is hot-headed. I've no idea what's happened to Judas. 
But I know, Jesus, that if they all fall, I will never. How those words must have burned in his ears when later he stood by the fire and watched Jesus from a distance. How those words must have stung him so hard when the rooster crowed and Jesus looked straight at him in Luke's Gospel. What terrible tragedy for Peter not to have known his own heart and have promised something he had no power to deliver. What did Peter do wrong? Three things. First, he disbelieved. Uh, Jesus said his falling was foretold by Scripture. And Peter said, no, it's not going to happen. You're wrong. He disbelieved what Jesus said. Mistake number one. Two, he didn't speak well of his brothers. He said, yes, Lord, these guys may desert you. They may not be men of substantial character. They may not have obtained the spiritual maturity that I have. They may desert you, but I'm not like them. Peter failed by preferring himself over them. Third, he was overconfident in himself. We come back to those words. I will never desert you. I know myself. I'm not a one to go back on my promises. I'm committed. I'm committed to you even to death. He disbelieved the word of God. He disdained his brothers. He was overconfident. And when you're in that position, you are set up to fall. And yet even after Jesus firmly reiterated what he said, even adding in the bit about the rooster, Even then, Peter said, even if I must die with you, I will never deny you. And sadly, we note that all the other disciples said the same. Maybe with a here, here thrown in for the sake of it. Matthew Henry says, those who are least safe are those who are most secure. Those who are least safe are those who are most secure, that is, in themselves. Why was it that Peter's fall was only temporary while Judas's fall was permanent? Luke chapter 22, verses 31 and 32, Jesus said to Peter, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. See, it was never in Peter's strength to do as he promised, but it all came down to the strength and the prayers of Jesus. Well, we've covered a lot of territory this morning and the disciples have been central to all of it. One who succumbed to temptation one who succumbed to pride, all who tasted and ate with Jesus, all who heard his word of warning, with one more than the others living to regret his proud boast. What a mixed bag they were, those disciples. All over the shop, every kind of lolly you can imagine, 
even while Jesus was with them. What a mixed bag they were. Is there a lesson there for us? Most surely there is. And it centres around the response we give him. Are you prone to disbelief? Are you prone to pride? Are you prone to weakness? Are you prone to speaking up before you think it through? Are you prone to promising God everything but failing to deliver one inch of what you promise? Well, I am. Welcome to the club, the disciples would say. Here's Jesus with his plan firmly in mind and here they are all over the shop. Thankfully, the plan didn't depend on them being faithful. The plan depended on Jesus being faithful. Otherwise, you will know what would have happened. It would all have fallen apart. See here the wonder of him who gave his life up for them and for us. But see too the great responsibility we have to live our life with and for him and remember who we are and remember whose we are. Let's not make the same mistakes as they did. Will you pray with me for that? Let's pray together. Our gracious God, we thank you for your word. It refreshes us, reminds us of how weak we are as disciples. We thank you that your plan of salvation didn't depend upon them fulfilling all that they promised to him but it fell squarely upon his shoulders whether he would be faithful and we know from reading the text that he certainly was that even before he got to the cross he had made up his mind to be obedient to the father no matter the cost that was before him. We glorify you for such a saviour as this and we thank you that though we fail, fail and fall, we stumble and trip, that there is forgiveness with you. Therefore you are to be feared. And we pray in our heart of hearts We want to live for you. We don't want to make bold pronouncements like Peter. But we do want to serve. So help us to serve. Remind us that the life we live is not our own. You purchased it. You bought it with your own blood. So accept our offerings to you today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
this life I live.